Hello, and welcome to episode 97 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com. And with me this week is Matt Futterman, a reporter at the New York Times, also the author of Running to the Edge, A Band of Misfits and the Guru Who Unlocked the Secrets of Speed, a book that I really enjoyed. Um, Even though it's not about tennis, I think most of you would like it too. And we'll get into a few running topics later on, as well as some possible intersections or comparisons between running and tennis. And Matt has been covering a ton of tennis lately, including going to Australia and covering the Australian Open. And being an American traveling to Australia, you had some lockdown to undergo as well, along with the players, didn't you? How did that go? I did. Thanks for having me here. It's uh, great to be on with you. Um, well, first, I spent 15 days in quarantine, uh, you know, which everyone who goes to Australia has to undergo. I think it's usually 14 for most people, but it ended up being 15 for us. Um, the group, I, the group I was categorized with. Uh, so that was, uh, that was really hard. I mean, it wasn't physically hard. I was in a perfectly lovely hotel room and getting free meals a day and all those things, but there's a lot of anxiety, uh, connected with that. And, um, it's just a very unfamiliar thing. Uh, if you've never been convicted of a crime and sent away to prison to be living in a room with a guard outside your door. Uh, so that was, that, that was very strange. And, and like I said, it was, it was psychologically quite difficult um, for me, at least. Is and then in the middle of the tournament, yes, we went into a uh, snap lockdown in the middle of the tournament, which just completely shut down the city of Melbourne in a way I've really never seen a city shut down before. And, you know, I was in New York at times when things were, were bad with, with COVID last spring and, uh, I mean, there was just, it turned it into a ghost town at the flick of a switch. So there was literally a guard outside your door? There was. I mean, I didn't have a personal guard, but I happened to have been at the end of the hallway. uh, And, you know, there was a chair at that, I think at either end of the hallway and maybe one in the middle. And I I don't know, you know, I wasn't allowed outside the room. I, I only walked up and down that hallway, you know, halfway down it to get into my room on the first day and then halfway down it to get out of my room on the last day, always with escorts. Um, so I couldn't wander and explore. So I don't know if there were two guards, three guards, one guard who changed seats, but you know, oftentimes when I would open my door to grab the meal that had been dropped off, he would be sitting there and, you know, you had to wear a mask when you open the door and, um, you know, it was, it's, it's hardcore. And I'm guessing you didn't get a treadmill or an exercise bike or anything. I didn't go into delivered by the tournament. I, but I knew what I was getting into and uh, I rented a exercise bike ahead of time. That was, was it, <laughs> there was some complications. It was delivered to the wrong hotel. So it took about, I was in quarantine. I was in the quarantine for, I think two days before it finally got delivered. But, uh, Yes, it was a, and I'm not a cyclist, but it was a rather fancy uh, Italian uh, road cycle um, that, you know, had a trainer on the back that I, you know, you take off the back wheel and you hook it up to a trainer. And so I I did have that in my room and uh, it was, that was a real lifesaver. 
So I'm guessing you were you were reporting through this time. You were working, right? You had connections to the outside world and press conferences and stuff like that going on. To the extent that there were, I mean, yeah, yeah, it was a very fluid situation because you know there was all kinds of positive tests that were popping up from the planes, including the one I was on. Uh, that you know, in terms of the tournament arrivals, so you know, players were getting put in the hard lockdown players were coming out players were rebelling um the public was furious at tennis australia and the government for letting this in i mean there's there's really no covid in the communities in australia for the most part so they were really really and they want to keep it that way uh and they've developed a really good system for keeping it that way and so you know taking this risk was seen as rather reckless by some sizable portion of the population. So, um, so yeah, there was news happening and we were trying to cover it. And, uh, you know, it was mid January that the, the, you know, the variants were coming out, the rates were skyrocketing. I think I wrote a couple of stories about the, the, you know, the problem, the sinking hopes through the Olympics. Um, so that was on the rope. So yeah, well, I was, I was working through the quarantine. Uh, but, um, yeah, thank God I was working and really would have gone crazy if I was. Yeah. So, so as you, as you're hinting here, this, it was a fluid situation. A lot of players were in lockdown as well. Some players were in lockdown for longer than they bargained for. And it, it, yeah, the, there was the, the tests on board the plane. There were tests that popped up the week before the tournament. There were positive tests that popped up during the Australian open how you use the word lucky a few times in one of your articles. It seemed like in a way the Australian open was lucky that it didn't all come crashing down. And despite all this careful preparation, like how close do you think it came to just having to shut the whole thing down and say, you know, nice try. Everybody needs to just go home. You know, I think if a few, I, I think if, I don't know what, what they, what they would have defined critical mass as, um, but you know, if if there had been during the tournament some positives that had cropped up, uh, that cropped up uh, among players, uh, I think that would have shut things down. They they did not they did not have that, and I think that part, that may partly be somewhat of a credit to the players who who really were not. I mean, I think some of them would go get go get a coffee or something like that. But they were pretty careful. Um, you know, they weren't going, I mean, especially during, obviously during the lockdown, the, the, the mid-tournament the mid lockdown. But a lot of them said when the city went back into lockdown, they said, it doesn't really affect me. I'm basically living in lockdown already. I come, you know, I come to the tournament site, I go back to my room and that's it. Uh, they were, they were, they were really trying to, they were really trying to lie low. I think the tournament, the, the, the organizers really wanted them to lie low. And like I said, there's no COVID in the community, but you know, I don't think they wanted to take many chances. Um, I certainly didn't want to take a lot of chances. Uh, and so it was early on, it could have been, it could have spiraled out of control if there was, if those playing, if, if if there had been some super spreader on, on the planes that had gotten 20, 30 people sick, um, that would have been a big problem. So, 
I don't know, you're dealing with, you know, what sound to us in America, like, like incredibly small numbers, but you know, every case in Australia sets off an alarm bell because you're dealing with this tiny, tiny base that is all brought in, that is all accounted for pretty much through the international arrivals. Um, that you look on those, on those maps, like on the New York times website, it says 12 cases in the country. Those are all in quarantine hotels. They're not in the community. There's not much danger of 12 becoming 50 and 50 becoming 200. So, so it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's just a whole different world, even from some of the other places that have it more under control than, than the U S has. It's just like 12. <laughs> yeah. It's great. It, it is honestly, it is, it, it, it's Alice in Wonderland. It's going, it's, you go through, it's going through the looking glass and coming out in a, in a completely different world um, where it's been just treated differently, approached differently. They have the physical advantage of being an island nation they could close their borders a lot more easily um but it's it's just a completely different way of going about things in ways that i don't think americans would ever accept um you know every time you go into a business you have to scan your phone and you know so you just so essentially your movements are monitored throughout the day by a computer that so in case somebody tests positive the computer you know, the computer tells you, you got to get tested and you got to isolate. If it's somebody who tests positive, who was in in an establishment when you were there. Um, And it's not a suggestion, get tested and isolate. It's you get tested and isolate and the police will come to your house and make sure you're isolating. So it's, it's hardcore. Yeah. So you, you wrote, I think you wrote something before the tournament started about how, Australians in general were, were were thinking about the tournament. I mean, there were people in Australia who didn't want the tournament to happen, who didn't want all these international arrivals. And some of that hung over to the tournament a little bit as well, I think, that like the att- attendance numbers before the snap lockdown, like, they were limited, I think, to 30,000 people the first few days of the tournament. And the first day, only 18,000 people showed up. And like the idea that a Grand Slam wouldn't sell out even at diminished capacity is pretty mind-boggling to me. And do you think that the that people not showing up was because of, you know, not a protest, but like dislike of the tournament happening or people were, were afraid to go out in the COVID environment? Or what do you think drove the attendance numbers? I, 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 I think it was more fear than anger. Um, I, I mean... Maybe there was, maybe it was, there was definitely some palpable resentment, but it's possible that those people weren't tennis fans anyway, or, or sports fans. And, you know, they saw this as, you know, not very important and just games and, you know, why, why is that worth the risk? Um, I, I do, th- I, I do sense that there was just a good deal of, of hesitancy because, you know, in walking around and there's still a lot of people wearing masks. There's still a lot of fear, uh, in the community of, of things spreading. It's a, it's a much, it's, it's not like flicking a switch in terms of going back every, you know, okay, no community spread. We're all back to normal and we're all having parties. Maybe it'll be like that in Texas and Mississippi, which just, you know, declared everything fine. Um, and everybody goes back to having parties. Uh, 
but you know, I suspect it won't be. I suspect it's going to be much slower going in 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 places that have tried to be more careful, like New York, uh, or among certain parts of the population. Um, you know, keep remember they they don't have they hadn't started vaccinations yet. The day I the, the day after the tournament, vaccination started, I believe, uh, or right around then. Maybe it was the Sunday of the final or something like that. But um, so people are st- people are still pretty cautious, and I, I and I'm just not used to. They just you know they've lived without all this stuff for a really long time, and they weren't just running rushing right back to it. So you wrote an essay um, in response to the snap lockdown about how it's sports without fans isn't sports, basically. That there's this huge difference in in the atmosphere, and we saw that. I mean, probably more dramatically than anywhere else, any sporting event at the Australian Open, because we got fans, no fans, fans again. And you found some some players who felt very strongly about that, like Curios lives off the fans. I mean, do you think that's close to a unanimous opinion of the players that like, having fans in the stadium really changes things? I, I mean, it's not just these players. I don't know any. I don't know anyone that's ever experienced sports who would ever argue the other side that, you know, no, the, there's no observer effect. Um, I mean, go out and hit some balls with a buddy and then have someone show up and have one person show up and watch. And it changes like, you know, and you'll change yourself in terms of how you put, you'll just become more self-conscious and, you know, they're human beings. And I mean, there's not a doubt in my mind that, uh, you know, if Kyrgios and Umber are playing in an empty stadium, that that matches over fairly quickly, you know, <laughs> uh, and that Umber wins and that comeback that Kyrgios mounts just never happens. And, yeah, I, I mean, it was just such a revelation to be around it again. It was a reminder of just... Oh yeah, this is why I do this. This is why it's so. This is why it can be so magical, because there's just this this great interplay that's happening between the action on the field, the people you're sitting with, the noise around you. It just all comes together in a way that you know. I think we've we've gotten used to living without, and once we get it again, we will never ever ever want to lose it again, and we'll never forget how special it is. Do you think that's true watching on TV? Like I, 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 I don't disagree with anything you say. I just, my experience of tennis is hundred percent on broadcast. And I mean, some of the fake crowd noise is dumb and obvious. And I, I hate that, but for watching tennis, the camera angles are often so focused on the court itself. Like, I don't want to notice a huge difference. Like if I think about it, I notice it, but and do you think, I mean, for you, does it change the experience that much of of watching sports on television or watching tennis specifically on television, having a crowd or not having a crowd there? I mean, I watch, look, I just, I watch, a, I've watched a lot less sports during the pandemic than I used to. Um, I'm just not, I'm not, I don't find myself, and I don't know, I never, I never quite understood why until I was at the Australian Open, why I wasn't all that, it, you know, I watched very little baseball last year in these empty stadiums. Didn't watch much football. Um, I just, I'm just not that, I, I don't know. I just didn't find myself that interested to 
as a as an observer of sorts, as a fan, you know, I think we get I think we get sort of taken in by you know, just seeing all these other people who are interested in it convinces us that we should be interested too, that this is something big and important going on because 60,000 people showed up, you know, at Emirates Arena on a Tuesday night, um, you know, on a rainy Tuesday night in London to watch this match. So it must be a big deal and we better tune in. And you, And when I'm not getting that, I find... You know, I don't know whether it's important or not. I guess I, I, it's, it feels missable. As someone who's watching a tennis match, um, I mean, it, I think it's A, more boring, and B, you just don't, you just see a, a, you just see a completely different experience on the face of a player in their, in their body language when there's nobody watching. I mean, just, I mean, pull up, the Brady and Osaka semifinal from the U.S. Open, and then pull up the final, and in the Australian Open. And yes, one's a semifinal, one's a final. Uh, Although I, I, you know, if you're Jennifer Brady, like there's plenty of there's plenty of pressure playing in that semifinal in the U.S. Open for the you know for the first time. So the big difference, I don't think, was so much the round the big difference was that there was this crowd and she's a nervous wreck in Australia. She is. I mean, you look at her, she's fixing her dress. She's twitching. She's, and I'm not saying this critically, I'd be doing that too. And it's your first, her first grandson final. And it's, it's understandable, but there's this X factor of the crowd that was there. And, you know, Osaka had experienced that before in a final Brady hadn't, I think it made a big difference. Yeah, I mean it's yeah, I'm 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 sure the players must just be like psychologically bouncing around like crazy in different stadiums and different atmospheres and no fans, some fans, full fans, like the whole the, the whole gamut. Um okay, a couple particular players you wrote about um that I, I wanted to talk about. The first one is Sophia Kennan, who crashed out early this year and she of course with his defending champion won the Australian Open last year. Um, she is an American. She is an American who won a Grand Slam as a 20-year-old, I think she was last year. Um, should she be a bigger star in the U.S. than she is? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't really, I don't know exactly how to answer that question. I mean, she's a terrific tennis player. She, uh, or can be a terrific tennis player. She, yes, she won Australia, Australian Open 2020. She made um, the finals at Roland Garros. Um, you know, should she be a bigger star? I, it, that's that might be like a, a one of those sort of uh, questions for for like you know the people who do the Q score or whatever it is. There's some there's some weird you know formula that makes someone I don't know star worthy or or what whatever it is. I think you know if she. I think she'll win more titles and she'll become and she and she'll become better known if she gets her head together. She's obviously in a bad in a bad spot right now. Um and you know, I I you know, I, I it it's 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 kind of disturbing to see. Um 
and you hope she gets out of it. You hope she has the right people around her that help her get out of it. She's really young though. And, um, you know, it's, it's, she got, she had that great run in Australia. She's, she's, look, she's terrific and she's a hard worker. Um, she's going to be good. I think if she can get her head straight and she might need some help from some other people who aren't around her right now, uh, if she can get her head straight, I think she's probably going to win for a while. I mean, maybe, maybe. One reason why I asked that question is one of the ongoing topics. I mean, it seems like this has been going on for as long as I've been following tennis, but especially the last five or 10 years, there's always this desire for more American stars. And some, some of it is, is focused on the men, particularly since there's these big stars in the men's game and none of them are American. And it seems like someone came along, won a slam at an early age and the the arrival of a new American star didn't really seem to register as, as such. I mean, Osaka's arrival is a big deal. People know who she is. People have registered. Okay. This is a future star. I mean, already a star, but this is someone who's going to dominate the game for a while. Uh, I even got that a little bit with Shiontech, but I wonder, I mean, I don't want to belabor the point, but it, it, it seems like someone who comes out of nowhere and wins a slam for the U S should be, should be a bigger deal. I mean, it, it, is it just the state of the game right now where it's there's so many people winning slams and showing up in the headlines that like you got to do more than that at this point that, you know, just winning the Australian Open isn't a big enough deal these days? Yeah, I think it's hard. I mean, I think if you also you go back to the 2020 Australian Open, if it didn't happen on Super Bowl Sunday, it happens on it happened you know, the week before the way I have to look at the calendar, but I think it probably happened on Super Bowl Sunday. If I'm not, you know, it would have been close. Like it would have been right around there. So in a normal year, the Australian open in America gets a little swallowed up. It's finals weekend gets a little swallowed up by the Super Bowl. Um, and the coverage gets a little swallowed up by it. Uh, so, I mean, there, there's that issue. It happens sort of in the middle of the night, far away. And, and that's dis- that. That's too bad because there is much of the tournament that takes place in prime time in the U.S. It's almost it's almost like the Australian Open in terms of resonating in the U.S. is much 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 better the first you know nine nine, nine days or so than it is in the fine in the, at the crescendo because uh, it, you know it's just all of a sudden all the matches are at night in Australia which means three four in the morning on the east coast and midnight in California and you know all of a sudden you just knock off a lot you know a lot of people I, I mean if I walked outside the room I'm in right now and I asked my wife and daughter who both watch tennis who both play tennis um who Sophia Kennan who, who Sophia Kennan is I don't know that they would know if she won the U.S. Open, they probably would now. It just would. It just would. Or Wimbledon, or it, it, it would. It would feel more. So there's a little bit of an Australian thing, uh, Australian Open thing there. That that's the one she. That's the one she won. And also, it didn't do her any favors that she won, and then the sport went away for five months. You know, I mean, she was playing really great. You know, maybe she won Indian Wells. You know, it's a hard court. There's no reason not. To, no reason. She wouldn't. No reason to think she wouldn't have played deep there. Maybe she goes to Miami. Wins Miami, then all of a sudden she's on a roll. Um, obviously knows how to play pretty well on a clay court. Made the finals. Roland Garros. I mean, who knows what her year would have looked like? 
fact is, it looked pretty good. You know, she's she, she's the only one I think to have made a, to have won one won one and made a final of another. Yeah. So um, she had a great year. I, I think she. I think she puts way, way, way too much pressure on herself at the moment um, to be a bigger star. I think it's frustra- a little frustrating to her, and she just wants to break through so badly, maybe not for the right reasons. It, it, was, it was just really, it was really upsetting press conference after her loss and being in the room with her because you could really feel how sad she was. Um, and she said... I had this interchange with her where she said, you know, she just felt terrible because everyone, and they just felt all this pressure because everyone expected her to win. And I said, you know, I'm really confused by what you mean um, in terms of everyone expecting you to win. You know, women's tennis is so deep right now. There's, there's 10 or 15 women who could win this tournament. Uh, Probably. You know, do you, did you really, I said, who was talk? who who was it, who are you talking about that is saying that you were the odds on favorite to win, to repeat? Nobody repeats as Grand Slam champions anymore, like in the women's game. It doesn't happen. Like maybe Osaka will start doing it, but I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, I generated a forecast before the tournament starts, and I don't think Kennan was even in my top five um, for for favorites for this tournament. And yeah, I certainly didn't hear anybody talking about her her that way. And some of your comments there about her her mental obstacles and maybe needing to add someone who's not on her team now, it, it, it makes me think of the an article you wrote about Iga Fiontek and her her having a mental coach on her team. And I'd I'd love to hear more about that. Like, do, do do you think that that's something we're going to see more of more players, like more tightly integrating the mental coaching into their, their whole program and development? Um, I, I, yeah, sure. I think, I think so. I think it just, you know, it's, 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 it's entered other sports. It's just, and they all use, they all speak with sports psychologists. It's just a matter of how often they do it. I'm not saying everybody should travel with one constantly, like, like Iga does. Um, you know, although it's, although it's working pretty well, so hard to argue with. Uh, I mean, if you're talking about Canon, I, I will say this is a general comment, and this is not particular to to to, to Sophia or necessary or her father. Or they may be, they may have the greatest relationship of any father daughter. I don't know, but you know, but I think it's really hard for any kid to be coached by a parent full-time like that and to be, to travel around with them full-time um especially someone of that someone that age you know man woman who whatever it is it's not the time in your life where you're wanting to I don't know I don't know a lot of 20 year olds who like to hang around their dad and mom all that much and to be in a situation where that's what you're doing. And like I said, this is not specific to her. I would make this comment generally um, about any athlete. Like that's just a weird time in your life. And there's a, it's a weird, it's a strange dynamic. Yeah. That's an interesting point. I'd, I'd never thought of it that way. And there's, it's kind of remarkable that there are so many success stories that especially women who do travel with their, their parents or one parent at that age and are still successful, but 
you can see it going wrong. Yeah, I mean, but the Williams sisters, I mean, Richard Williams was not their only coach. And by the time they were winning Grand Slams, he wasn't really their only coach, right? I mean, they were getting, they were working with a lot of other people, I think. Um, You know, and they very quickly, as they went into their 20s, they definitely, he definitely took a back seat. So if you're talking about success stories, um, yeah, there are some out there, um, but there are a lot that, but but there are a lot that aren't that, that there are a lot also that you don't see, um, and so you know I think it I, I, I would I would say I mean I'm thinking of Michaela Schifrin, the skier who you knows worked very very closely with her mother who's who's still kind of a companion of sorts, but as she's entered her twenties and you know become an adult she's broken away and she's doing things on her own and working with other coaches and you know, as a boyfriend and traveling, like, it's just, you know, you're growing up and doing stuff. And it's, it's, I, I, like I said, that's not a statement that's specific to tennis. It's not specific necessarily to Sophia and Alex Kennan. I don't know anything particular about their relationship. Um, but it's just sort of a human observation, a, a human observation I have. Well, and with, with some, with, with some firsthand knowledge, since you have daughters, right? I do have three daughters and I, and two of them in college who, who went to college 3000 miles away from me. So I, you know, I'm well familiar with people that age wanting to be away from their parents and think it's very, and think it's very healthy. Okay. So maybe, maybe the Kennans can learn something from, from your daughters and the choices they've made. Mm -hmm. Uh, so let's see. Um, on Sviatak Kennan, you also wrote, art- wrote articles about Andreescu's early loss and Carlos Alcaraz. And I mean, of course, the coverage that some someone like the New York Times is doing throughout a slam is going to be driven in large part by just, I mean, who's winning, what the results are from day to day. But some of those were, you, you had a lot of topics to choose from and you picked a lot of youngsters. And I love that. I mean, I, w- I would rather read about a 20 year old I don't know a lot about versus, you know, the third comeback of some player who's been injured off and on for years. And I'm wondering, is that, is that a conscious choice that you or your editors are making or just driven by events? Or, I mean, what, what's causing the the coverage of the youngsters? Well, I'm a little, I, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of on the other side of it from you. I, I can't read enough about, you know, Djokovic, Federer, uh, Djokovic, Vedder, and Nadal, like, you know, any, it, it's sort of like, you know, if you were a golf writer 15 years ago or something like that, you know, Tiger Woods is the story until he ceases to be the story. And so, you know, I will always be obsessed with trying to find out the latest about those guys, you know, um, and find them completely captivating. At the same time, you want to write about some other people who, have interesting little tales and in ways that other people can relate to. Um, You know, I had heard of Alcaraz before this tournament, but I'd never seen him play. I didn't think I'd be writing about him, but then all of a sudden he beat Goff in the week before and there was a lot of buzz about him. And, and then I showed up to watch one of Rafa's practice sessions and he was hitting with Alcaraz. And I was like, all right, this is interesting. Um, especially because Alcaraz couldn't get the ball back, and hmm. I couldn't. T- and it was almost like 
It's like almost Rafa was almost being like that asshole you go on the court to hit with and like just keeps like you know keeps hitting winners when you're just trying to warm up. Um, and I couldn't tell why he was doing that. It was like you know I thought he should be a little nicer to the kid. You know if he chose to hit with him, hit with him, right? Uh, but slowly Alcaraz got a little used, got a little more used to the pace. So. Um, you know, yeah, I just try and mix it up a little bit. I knew I wanted to write about, uh, you know, Svatek, that story I've been working on for a few months, you know, for a while. I talked to Daria, uh, her sports psychologist, a good, uh, about a month before the tournament, um, knowing I wanted to do something because I thought that was really interesting. And I'm, I also just, you know, absolutely love Iga's game. I think she has, you know, just absolutely beautiful hands. And um, I think she's just a terrific, terrific player uh, who, you know, I'd be shocked if she wasn't number one in the world at some point in the next five years. Um, so, you know, I knew I wanted to write about her. Andrescu, you know, it's, it, it, these are just, I guess the common denominator is these I found just compelling stories. You know, it's not a, ma- it's not a matter of I want to write about young people. I just find them to be, they were, they were compelling at that. They had compelling narratives at that moment. Um, I mean, I, I definitely agree with you about Iga. I've said that I, I'm I'm hoping she and Osaka stay strong enough that we get like 20 head-to-head matches between them over the course of their career. I can't wait for the first Osaka-Iga match. It's going to be fantastic. Um, you told me before we hit the record button that the New York Times is ramping up. It's trying to ramp up its tennis coverage. And one benefit of that is you get to write about Djokovic as you did and 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 presumably Roger when he's back in Nadal, but you also get to write about these other stories. Um, in, you, you also mentioned you, you thought there was a nice, um, a nice blend between the New York Times tennis coverage and the New York Times demographic, I think you said. I don't want to misquote you here, but what, what do you think the, what do you think the benefits are? What, how do you think the, the New York Times readers are, are wanting to hear more about tennis? Yeah, it's not so much a demographic thing. Um, uh, I, I think it's just, I think it's more just, I mean, I, first of all, I can see it in the numbers, you know, like we know how many, we know how many readers read all of our story or how many page views they get. You know, we have that metric. So we see where there's interest. Um, and there has long been a lot of interest in tennis, which is a rather small sport in the U S compared with, you know, some, with the other big sports. Um, and I just think, uh, it it just seems to really resonate with our readers. I don't know that. I think there's, there's a certain level of, of, you know, education, international cultivation, um, interest in the world at large, that you find among a lot of people who read the New York Times that I don't want to say that they're requirements for tennis, but it makes you more, I would say it probably makes you more likely that you have had some exposure to the game growing up and into, and into your adult years, um, which you know, it's, it's, it's not that often that people sort of discover a sport at 25 and decide to be a fan of it. It's usually something you sort of grow up with and, and, and grow into. So, um, 
it's a, so that's a, you know, and that's, that's something we just, it, it bears itself out in, you know, popular, you know, in the popularity of the stories and you can, it's, this is not anything I've, um, you know, this is not like, you know, secret information. You can just go, go through our most popular lists and uh, of, of articles that are, you know, that we maintain and have on our website and you'll see more. I, I think you'd see more tennis stories there than, than you might expect given the, 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 you know, as you mentioned before, the kind of lack of American stars or um, that, in the last few years, but also, you know, to that point, um, you know, tennis has probably been as, you know, it's, it's been hugely popular the last 10 years or so without any American male stars for the most part. So, you know, I do think that says, I do think we're living in a little bit of a different world now in terms of whether, how essential that might be for the health of the game in America. I don't think it matters all that much. I don't think, I don't see any reason why, you know, uh, why Tsitsipas or Medvedev couldn't eventually be hugely popular in the U.S. Well, certainly looking at the number of people who come through the turnstiles at the U.S. Open, at least before the pandemic, like you wouldn't think this is a sport in crisis by any means, no matter how many Americans are, are making it very far in the draw. Um Okay, so I promised we were going to talk about a, a little bit about running. Um, again, everyone, if you're if you like what Matt has said so far, check out his book, Running to the Edge. Um, one thing I found fascinating reading about, I mean, uh, one of the crazy things about marathon training is like that the elite marathoners are running twice a year. I mean, it's it, it's unlike just about any other sport where you train to perform twice a year. If anything goes wrong, it's once a year. If a couple of things go wrong, it's zero times a year. And I'm wondering, do you think there are any lessons in that or the way that marathoners prepare um, that would apply to players right now? Because everybody took five months off minimum. Some players like Ashley Barty took a year off. Players like, like Osaka right now is taking time off between Australian Open and, and Miami. Like tennis players are taking breaks like never before, um, forced and otherwise. And yeah, I mean, do you think there's any any insight from that running coaches or an experienced runner like yourself could give them to to negotiate that new schedule? I mean, I think it's a difficult and for this mental, it's it's, it's very difficult only having two bites of the apple a year as a marathoner. And I think one of the great benefits of tennis is that they, they you know, if if you just focus on the slams, they're getting four of those a year. Um, having said that, I think there is you know, there is this increased attention to part of it is financial part of it is, you know, driven by TV coverage and things like that. Um, an increased emphasis on the biggest events, uh, and those would be the slams. And I think what you, what you're going to see, uh, especially, especially if the economics of the tour stops don't, improve sooner rather than later is you'll you'll see a lot of people you'll you'll just see players skipping you know more tournaments um because this may not be worth it for them uh you know to fly halfway across the world and maybe lose in the first round or you know especially especially at this time and i think they've also a lot of them have sort of seen the value of of rest 
I mean, Osaka did really well at the U.S. Open after not playing for a long time. And she did really well at the Australian Open after not playing very much for a long time. So there's probably an increased understanding of what, you know, it means to be, what it means and how long it takes to find your rhythm. Okay. Um, another, uh, another kind of tennis running comparison I wanted to ask you about is one of the, one of the messages in, in your book is that running is a, a distance running is a team sport. You don't really think of it that way because it's, you imagine like the lonely person out for a solo 20 mile run, but it, it can be a team sport and the best, the best runners treat it that way. And there's no obvious parallel in tennis. Like, I mean, obviously you're always playing somebody else. If you have a practice partner, you could end up facing them in the tournament. But I mean, maximum, you've got two, maybe four players on court. So, I mean, you can't really, nobody can draft your forehand for you. (laughs) No, I think, I I mean, I I, I do think there is a team, a little bit of a team issue um, that you see somewhat in tennis and you see it. And I think it's country driven. Uh, but only with certain countries. Um, And you certainly, you've certainly saw it for years uh, with the Spanish players. I mean, those guys are tight. They do, they, they, they do a lot together. They, they watch a lot of soccer together. They practice with each other. They, you know, they, those, those guys, especially, you know, uh, you know, in, in when Verdasco was playing uh, more and I'm um, thinking back, you know, six years ago or so, that was a pretty cohesive group. They'd sort of grown up together and um, and they're still pretty cohesive. You know, you see them at each other's matches uh, and they, 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 they really, they really show up. Uh, it, and, you know, he doesn't, do it as much because you know he's resting for tournaments, but the Serbian players are very tight too. So they really pull for they really pull for each other. Uh, you know, I don't see it that much among the French players. Um, you know, I, the, Medvedev and Rublev are pretty tight. You know, see, seem to have a, a nice cohesion there. I don't know that they're big enough to call it a team. They, you know, they both knew before the tournament but they didn't really know him particularly well um so you know there's they're obviously you know fairly tight with uh with karen as well uh you know but so there is somewhat of an aspect there that can come through uh with that nationality base i see it a little bit the american players not that much though yeah, I mean, and do you think there's a there's a benefit there? Like, I've I've heard Viktor Troitsky say that just seeing how much success Djokovic had, knowing he could hang with him on the practice court, like that that gave him extra confidence. I mean, do you think that's like sort of a secret to the Spaniard's success that you know they're they're friends with this guy who's the king of clay? Like they're they're hanging around these great players all the time. Do they do they get a performance boost from that kind of cohesion? Well, I think so. I think they help each other out, and I and I think you know, everyone's pretty, pretty clear that, you know, Djokovic can be very generous as a player, you know, to other players in terms of improving them, in terms of giving them pointers and tips. 
And I think he's probably super generous with this with, with the other Serbian players that you know he won he won the Davis Cup with. He likes to win the you know he was he was into that ATP Cup tournament. You know he was playing doubles when the when there was a rubber match. He was he was into it. It was not I'm just warming up for Australia. And he was disappointed as hell when they lost. He was it was you know I mean. People give Djokovic a hard time for any number of things, sometimes very deservedly so. But the guy shows up, you know. The guy is, the guy is, uh, you know, Ben Rothenberg, I work with sometimes, you know, he describes him as a professional tennis player. And he really is. He's a professional tennis player. He shows up, he does the work. And if he's there, he's there. Yeah, I mean, you certainly like to be the guy who can grab onto Djokovic's um, bootstraps and get pulled up with him. So, last question, another an, another running thing. I so we've seen a couple play. Well, at least one player, Caroline Wozniacki, choose to run a marathon during her playing career, which is she passed me during that run. Really? Like, well, I mean, yeah, that I means- was running. It was at it was mile nineteen. I was in Harlem. And all of a sudden, I, in, in New York, and all of a sudden, I, and it was a bad day. It was windy. I was having a bad race. And all of a sudden, I heard this motorcycle behind me. And I thought, like, who the fuck is on a motorcycle? I was in a bad mood. And I turned around, and God, and there was Caroline, who I knew going in and had never run more than 12 miles before. And I was just like, God damn it. She's passing me. And she finished, uh, I, I think she ran, I, had a, I didn't have a good race that day. I think she ran 326 and I ran like 329 or something like that. Um, but I was annoyed because I was sure I was going to beat her after she said um, that she'd only run 12 miles. And, you know, look, it turns out being a world-class athlete, you have some advantages. Yeah, I'd, I'd say so. And, and 329, I mean, I know it's not your PR, but I'm pretty sure that's the fastest marathon time of any guest or host on this podcast. So, okay. I don't know, but we'll set. Um, I mean, well, who knows who I'll talk to in the future, but so far um, it's all yours. So uh, I was also thinking Amelie Moresmo ran a pretty fast marathon after her playing career. Um, if you're looking at the field now, who do, who would you pick as like the the best future marathoner of of active tennis players? Oh, that's that you know that is a great question. Um, who doesn't? I'm trying to think. Who just? I mean, if he ever wanted to, I think Djokovic could run. A, could I don't know? He runs in a, in the right weather. He might be able to run a great marathon. He seems to have just this unbelievable wellspring of energy that he can draw on um, throughout, uh, you know, he gets tired, but then he gets another gear. And that's a lot about what marathoning is. You start to hurt, but then you figure out how to go on. And then all of a sudden you're up again. So um, I don't know. I must, I'm trying to think of who's a little, who's a little smaller uh, on, on the tour. There's not that many small people these days. Maybe Schwartzman could run a good marathon, uh, you know, being, you know, he, he, he's got a pretty, he's, he's got a pretty good motor. Yeah, definitely. Alex Dimonor comes to mind too, as a fast guy, who's not that big. I didn't think about that angle of the question that we're mostly talking about guys who are six, two these days. And yeah, that's not your typical marathoning build. Um, okay. Well, thank you very much for doing this, Matt. That was great. Um, once again, for everyone listening, I've been talking to Matt Futterman, a reporter at the New York times. Um, 
the author of Running to the Edge, which, as I've said, is a fantastic book. You should check it out. It will definitely inspire you to go for a run and maybe even give you a few tricks to be faster when you do so. Um, I was faster yesterday, but I don't know if I can I can attribute that to the book. We'll see. Um, but Matt, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's great. Um, so everyone, thanks for listening. This has been episode 97 of the Tennis Abstract Podcast. You can find the rest of the podcast at tennisabstract.com and we'll see you next time. Bye.